You're listening to Festival Grasp. A podcast diving into the business and culture of the music festival world. With your hosts, Mario. And Sinead. Well, welcome everybody to the newscast in this week's edition. Mysteryland is taking virtual festivals to new heights with Let's Get High. Drug use is prevalent during virtual raves, according to new study. Partying in a pandemic, why the rave scene is experiencing a resurgence. Greedy business ethics above all. Dave Clark blasts DJs performing during pandemic. Independent music festivals amidst the pandemic. A conversation with Ever After's founder. But first, now available, the 2019 Black Rock City Census Population Analysis. Wow, that is a mouthful. This by Justine Scott in the Burning Man blog. Uh, She wanted to track those who came to the festival year after year and to know more about the burners and how Black Rock City has adapted and changed over time. Uh, So as of last year, the new study shows that fewer burners are coming back to Black Rock City and demographically, they're all getting a little older. The census also shows a decrease in the proportion of virgins attending Burning Man, virgins as being first timers. And the decrease was the highest at 18% since 2013. They also found that the population of married burners was higher than the proportion of burners in an unmarried relationship. In 2019, it also showed that the median annual income went up 11% from 65,000 to 72,000 for participants. And this has over doubled the annual increase from 2013 to 18, which was 5%. So the burners who keep coming back are making more money. And what they can deduce from all of this is how people live their lives outside of the burning community and what they're involved in in terms of jobs and making money and relationship statuses and these kinds of things. One of the other things that they tried to track was where the likely ticket source for the burn uh, came from. And a lot of the ticket sales that they found out were coming from direct group sale, uh, which means that they were involved in theme camps or rather these, these tickets were part of theme camp tickets or art projects or mutant vehicles, or they were for staff and volunteer organizations. And this was an increase up from 2018 of almost 22%. And for the sixth straight year, this study showed a reported decline in the percentage uh, of participants selecting ethnicity as white or Caucasian. So that was from a high of 82.9% in 2013 to a low of 76.4% in 2018, which means that there is a higher percentage of people reporting as Asians, about 2.1%, and Hispanic Latinos went up about 2.4%, and there were other multiple categories that increased as well. So less white people and more ethnicities were were being drawn to Burning Man. And then she concludes by saying that in these trying times, it's comforting to see that Burning Man has built a strong and stable community. There may not be a physical Black Rock City this year in 2020, but there is a reliable foundation for burners to stay connected and keep the spirit of Burning Man alive in our unique ways. What do you think, Sinead, about a census? Yeah, I think it's important to understand your demographic um, and who your attendees are. And it promotes the need for change. If you if you discover that your event is, you know, 90 percent white males or one base ethnicity, you want the diversity, you want people to be able to access your event 
So it gives them an opportunity to look at what measures they have imposed and how they can continue to increase those diverse numbers. Mysteryland is taking virtual festivals to new heights with Let's Get High, their debut digital streaming event that will host 50 artists across eight channels for six hours of all things EDM. This broadcast is set for August 29th. Instead of seeing your favorite DJs playing at massive stages, fans will get to virtually watch artists performing from inside hot air balloons. The stream will feature a wide range of electronic music and fans will have the chance to bounce around these virtual stages as if they were going to an event in real life. So there's different rooms that you can access. I think that Mysteryland is following very closely behind Tomorrowland in the in the idea of them needing to step up and be more innovative when it comes to producing virtual events. Yeah, it's going to you know, have to be left to be seen, whether they can match the production value of uh, Tomorrowland being the leaders in this exercise uh, of augmented live streaming. Now, Mysteryland is providing this event or this live stream for free, which is far different than Tomorrowland, which charged for their event 20, 23 euros um, or 27 USD. Now, Mysteryland is the largest festival in the Netherlands. It's been around a long time. It's by the uh, Netherlands-based promoter IDNT, which stands for the initial of the three founders of the company. And uh, I, I think they had to do this because you can't maintain a position of fame as a brand if you don't do something. I'm wondering if they're potentially falling a little short here. Only a six hour broadcast, even though it's free. I'm not sure how much impact they're going to make with this. People want to know why the rave scene's experiencing a resurgence. And the perception of that is that there's more illegal raves happening now. And it's the expression of frustration at the loss of a summer or the stress of a lockdown. All of these things are causing people to act out and to just say, who cares? Let's just go hang out at the beach and listen to some music. But then friends invite friends and it becomes this huge thing that they don't necessarily expect. But again, to prevent these things from happening and from getting out of hand, the governments need to find ways to calm frustration in the lack of events. And they need to get more innovative on the ways they can safely allow live events. Yeah, I think this is going to become a topic of conversation for a long time here. And we may have to find different angles to speak about it. But in essence, I felt the desire to go out and, uh, you know, involve myself in the ways that I used to and found myself uh, maybe holding back a little bit. But I don't want to come across as us being wet blankets to the enthusiasms of others and their desire to go and be socially connected. But things are different now. And they could potentially go back to some kind of uh, pre-COVID normal as soon as a vaccine comes out, uh, which everyone's in a, a huge hurry to, to, to make happen. But I think for now, it's almost like you got to wait till Christmas to open your presents. I mean, a little patience, people. And I think you have to remember that every province in Canada has a different stance on what has to be done. Every state in America, like everywhere you go, they have a different stance on what are the measures. And I think the hardest part for people is that because there's no guideline between the differences, people are just frustrated. I will say you make great points there. It's very true that your source of information guides your actions most of the time. You know, just use common sense. 
All right. Greedy business ethics above all. David Clark blasts DJs during the pandemic. So Sinead, renowned English DJ and electronic music producer David Clark took to Facebook this week to decry DJs who have decided to perform live amid the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. He also blasted organizers of such parties as selfish and explicitly voiced his doubts of any major music festival taking place in Europe throughout 2021. He went on to display dismay at the scene and criticize top flight DJs who financially do not need to make money but are in some kind of FOMO pact, he was quoted as saying. And uh, he also believes that they are being pushed by their managers to DJ in environments that are far from legal. He also ripped them for stripping the current dance music zeitgeist of its culture and dishonoring the legitimate clubs slash events that close their doors and face hardships by putting forward, quote, greedy business ethics above all. Now, he went on to say, of course, there are inconsistencies in all of this and it doesn't feel fair. But by doing these gigs, it gives ammunition to authorities to further delay events coming back. And now, despite feeling pragmatic that perhaps small events could come back this year, I severely severely doubt if any major festival will happen within the Central European bloc next year, he wrote. And of course, now uh, back in March 2020, during the initial outbreak of the virus, Mr. Clark was calling on those who experienced gig cancellations uh, to send fees back to their promoters because it would enable them, quote, to refund the fans and help everyone survive to get through this very long hardship, unquote. Shanae, what do you think about Mr. Clark's statements? He's right. If people are just doing it and they just want all this money and they're, oh, well, we can capture this audience entirely and we can profit off this. I feel like that kind of defeats the reason why we have these music events. It's to come together. It's to help each other. And it gets taken away from that. And then it does affect if they're doing that from the start and they're hosting these parties and they're breaking the law, yeah, that governing body is not going to want to adjust the law for them in that way. But if you petition the city or if you, you know, come to them with your ideas on how you can do things safely, again, it's that give and take. Yes, we want to do these things, but are we allowed? Can we can we do it in a better way, in a safer way, et cetera? Absolutely. I find the last part extremely fascinating because he is basically saying, listen, if you were a DJ who had captured some kind of payment for an up and coming event and then COVID hit and everything got shut down and the event was not going to happen, instead of keeping that money, you should give it back to the promoters so that they could then redistribute that as refunds to the fans. And I wonder when you look at that for face value, it sounds great. But if I had been given $5,000 to play some or more. And then I knew I wouldn't be playing for a long time. I might choose very wisely potentially to hold on to that income for as long as possible and maybe not be that unself-interested to then give it to a promoter who then is responsible for being also amazing and then sending it back to the fan base. The breakdown could happen throughout the entire chain there. I think that it really depends on the situation. If you were paid six months before COVID hit, you were paid, let's say, 50% as a deposit of your booking, you might have spent that by that point, depending on what your financial situation is like and, and if you're living paycheck to paycheck or if you have a lot of money in the bank. So I think those who are privileged enough to be able to afford giving that money back or not taking that other portion of, of what they're owed by 
you know, even if the contract is broken because of a, a natural disaster, I think that you should give it back if you can, if you have the means to, or if you can even give a, a small portion of it back. But there just needs to be a bigger push to insurance companies because, yeah, you can't expect your entertainment to lose all of their livelihood because, you know, if they've had bookings set from March to August and now they're not doing anything, you're right. You, you won't necessarily have money at the end of that. And it's not fair to have to give it back if you can't. But I think insurance companies should be the ones who push and who who can provide the refunds for attendees because then they keep their clients longer. Their clients aren't going to go bankrupt from having to give all the refunds that they've already spent the money for, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, in our festival business deep dive, we're going to find out whether DJ fees for the top 1% are, in fact, overinflated and, and whether they potentially do need to come down to a more reasonable level. And I would argue that that might just have to happen in terms of a recovery for the industry where, you know, you can't as a high priced DJ demand the same amount of money. And in light of the fact that a lot of people have been struggling, not to not least to mention event producers, promoters, and, and all the other people that they employ, is that that might have to be reduced rates all around for, for at least 2021 yeah, exactly. in order to get the festival industry back up to snuff. Independent music festivals amidst the pandemic, a conversation with Ever After's founder written by Colin via fucks with it publications. So Colin interviews Gabriel Maracone, the owner and founder of Ever After Music Festival in Kitchener, Ontario, about his take on the future of the festival because of COVID being an independent music festival. When Gabriel was asked the secret of the longevity as Ever After has run five years successfully and would have run six if COVID cancellations hadn't happened, Gabriel states that the focus of the attendee and their experience is the secret to success and that a true festival experience provides much more than just music and talent on the stage as entertainment. Later in the interview, he states that as an independent festival, they have the ability to give fans what they want as they listen to their feedback and suggestions. In that interview, he's saying that with sponsorship, you lose that ability. If you have a presenting sponsor, they take a little more control and then you don't get to really listen to your attendees as you should. Though, if anybody has been following Ever After on social media over the years, they would know that this festival after experiencing different issues regarding running out of water and other disastrous attendee experiences, they actually turned off their Facebook reviews, I want to say like a year or two years ago. And it just made me take a step back while reading this interview, because if you're saying that you do listen to your fans and you want to listen to their feedback and you take that on, I don't think that you would necessarily turn off your, your reviews on there. But in addition to that, they're also taking major backlash for not being able to provide refunds during the cancellation and allowing ticket holders a two-week period to set up a repurposing of the ticket for 2021. So meaning that you have a small chance as a ticket holder to get your money back if new attendees purchase them. So I'll leave it up to the listeners to make their own decisions on the integrity and honesty of EA. But with that information, I just think that there's, there's more to look into. Oh, dear. Um, Gabriel Matichoni, I must say his name is quite something. I, I do like it. However, this man in this article comes across as a professional PR spokesman 
And in my opinion, from the evidence I've seen, the one thing that he's not good at is running a music festival. And he should be ashamed of himself because when you make statements like that, making it sound like you have all the best intentions, that you're a professional music festival producer, that you listen to your fan base, that uh, even though you know that it's hard to be an independent festival and that it's important to turn away money because when you take money, it comes with strings and those strings can affect the production and the experience of the attendees. I can't help but call bullshit. This guy should be ashamed of himself. Now, his productions, Beyond Oz Productions, is quoted as stating in its LinkedIn profile as being a worldwide lifestyle and entertainment company providing top-of-the-line events around the world with a full in-house production team. Any size event can be produced by this turnkey operation from managing, marketing, talent buying, and providing world-class production. Now, If you go to some of the articles that we've linked in the show notes for you, you can clearly see that everything in there is is a far cry from providing a world-class production. There is video evidence from people at the festival where there was a complete breakdown in festival security, in festival safety, and numerous other transgressions that as a festival organizer, if you can't get it right, you have no business to be in the business. Now, I will also go on to say that just this year, Beyond Oz Productions was entitled to receive $100,000, that being from a combined total of $333,000 that was given by the Ontario government for tourism funding uh, in the region of Kitchener, Ontario, which is where this festival takes place, the KW October Fest also received $100,000 and three other festivals got uh, the remainder split amongst them. The the grant is called Celebrate Ontario, if anybody wants to fact check this and look into it. And the intention of the grant was to provide companies, festivals with a way to give their attendees and their ticket holders an alternative programming experience during COVID. So the intention behind it is you can't host your event, but maybe this money will help you towards a virtual event, essentially. Or if you have any other ideas, it would it would assist you in that. So many festivals applied, but Ever After is, is one of the few who've received the most money. And yeah, it's If you go on social media, you just see a constant, any post that they make, which they've not announced any use of that money. Um, They've not announced getting that money. It's just that if you've done your research, you know that they have it. If you go on their social media, any post that they make, people are like, oh, well, what about, you know, giving us a refund? Can, Can we have our money back since we can't, you know, travel to Canada or this festival is not going to happen until next year. I don't know what my situation is going to be like. I just want my money now. And they get completely ignored or they get this blanket statement of we're a small event company. So we spent the money and we're not able to give it back to you. And we don't have sponsorships. So it's not like we have this extra cash. Um, Paraphrasing, they didn't say it exactly like that. But those, you know, were, were the tones that they were taking. But we know that they did receive this money. So in reality, yes, they couldn't afford to refund everybody with that $100,000. You only have your brand. And right now your brand is being thrown under the bus. And if you look at all of their social media reviews in general, people are picking out the issues that they've experienced rightfully. And there's no visual representation of the growth from the festival to show that they're seeing it, they're hearing it, they're listening. And so we don't know where that money went, but we know that they have it. 
Well, on the subject of issuing refunds for tickets, I've actually come out and said this on the record that I, it's a slippery slope and I don't think that that should be an across the board necessity for festivals to do. Um, it's a complicated issue and certainly it doesn't mean that they're pocketing the money. It could have already been spent or they would literally go bankrupt if they were to refund all those all those payments back. However, when you mentioned the grant and that it was potentially given for the purpose of creating a live digital event, he is quoted as saying in this article, we are currently not pursuing any digital oriented events because it is, in my opinion, that this goes against the experience we attempt to create and sell. You cannot truly obtain that festival experience through a screen in your living room. I do believe that a digital aspect will be part of a live entertainment for future events, but will never be the main source to obtain live entertainment. Like if that doesn't sound like someone who is freaking lazy and opting out of giving their fan base what they deserve at this time when they're stuck at home, I have nothing else to say. Yeah. I mean, especially considering they're not giving refunds, it would have just been a little, a nice cushion of peace of mind for attendees to say, okay, well, I still at least got something out of what I've spent. Just in closing, I will say I went on the uh, Facebook and Ever After Music Festival review page, the one that you said had closed down. And lo and behold, the last post up here that's pinned is by Shanae Silver, yours truly, podcast host here on Festival Grasp. And she writes, the artists were amazing as they usually are. This is my fourth year I've gone and the organization was as bad as the first year. The sound quality was poor at the main stage. The lack of accessible water and shade was just disgusting. Who runs out of water? It took 15 minutes for the paramedics to get to the second stage when someone cracked their head open during an AC Slater set. In fact, AC Slater had to stop his DJ set to point out that there was someone who was hurt in the crowd. And then it still took 15 minutes for that person to uh, be evacuated for medical attention. And she asks, why wasn't there a stationed ambulance at this stage? The security was an absolute joke. The map had zero important information on it. Uh, the Ontario stage was hidden and tucked away. VIP was a joke. Uh, less bathrooms all around. Very small selection of food trucks with one and a half to two hour wait times. And then Sinead goes on. It's apparent that this year the greed of money got to them and they cut corners. I think next year I'll save my money and go to a better festival. Do you still hold by all of those statements? I do. Um, if anybody takes a look at this review, I actually have it from the second year, the third year, and the fourth year that I went. I just continued to update my review so that it it shows the the differences. But I did go in 2019 and they had some small changes, but it just... It lacks the growth. In my opinion, from going every year, I see the same issues. I think that they also, they said that they almost doubled their capacity last year. So they're like cutting corners on things like bathrooms and shade and water. And then they're making more space for camping so they can hold even more people in their festival. And it shows they're caught up in this. I want to have the most attendees that I could possibly have. And there's a bit of a, like a disregard for safety and for care to your attendees because you want to go to a festival and feel like, okay, I'm not going to die. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay no matter what happens while I'm here. Me and the people I'm around are, are safe and taken care of. 
Absolutely. At the end of the day, regardless of anything that is stated through this article here in this interview and on the LinkedIn uh, page, the one thing that Ever After and Beyond Oz Productions is not is a world-class production. Moving on. Drug use is prevalent during virtual raves. So a new academic study highlights the statistics surrounding virtual event attendance and drug use. Apparently, consumer behavior has made the dramatic switch from in-person to virtual entertainment over the past few months. Researchers at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine and the NYU School of Global Public Health studied one particular aspect of this switch, inquiring whether virtual festival attendees have a propensity to use drugs during the events. According to the new study's lead author, Dr. Joseph Palomar, that is an affirmative. He's quoted as saying, we explored whether stay-at-home orders changed how people use drugs, and it appears that the drug use during virtual gatherings is somewhat prevalent among the party-going population we studied. Around 40% of those surveyed who attended a virtual rave this year also reported using an illegal drug, and 70% reported consuming alcohol during an online event. Those findings are based off of a survey sample of 128 self-reported EDM revelers from New York City. It seems that the general switch to virtual events has retained the interest of dance music fans overall, with over 55% of the sample reporting that they have attended at least one virtual rave during quarantine. Ultimately, researchers see virtual events as a potential future touchpoint for outreach with regards to education and harm reduction efforts. The academic study was first published by the International Journal of Drug Policy. Sinead, your thoughts? I think that, you know, the people who are doing drugs at home are probably the people who were doing drugs at festivals. But the difference is you're now in a space either by yourself or with under a handful of people, depending on what the laws are in your municipality. And it becomes more dangerous because as the COVID pandemic is hitting, drugs are becoming more tainted because there's a lack of like illegal drug trade, I guess. You know, they're not able to get into the country, so they're not able to smuggle the drugs over. And it becomes a huge safety issue because if you're at a festival, at least you're near paramedics or you're able to get the care that you need. But if you're at home with your friends, they don't really know that you got tainted drugs, they're not necessarily going to be able to help you. So I just shout out to anybody who is choosing to use drugs during this time, buy a testing kit, test your drugs, learn, go to your pharmacy and get a naloxin kit for overdoses and learn how to use that. And always just keep it on hand because anything could happen and you just want to be as safe as possible. Yeah, great advice there. I also think being in the presence of trusted friends is important if you're going to use any drugs recreationally. And of course, you know, use common sense, test your drugs, do them in moderation, know your limits and just be safe. Because at the end of the day, whether you're out in a public space, at a musical rave, at a club or in your living room, bouncing to Tomorrowland's live stream, I think that you need to practice being a responsible adult. We don't want people getting hurt. Uh, we know people want to party. We know people want to have fun. And we know people want to expand their minds and reach new horizons with their experiences. However, this is something that can potentially become a huge issue. And I wonder if there's going to be some kind of plan by music festivals to make public announcements through some of their virtual live stream festivals. We're going to have an episode in our deep dive section of Festival Grasp all about harm reduction. So we're going to definitely get into all of that 
and our recommendations, findings, and discovering some ways that festivals and live streams in particular can make it safer for everyone out there who wants to rave. Well, thanks everyone for joining us on another week's Festival Grasp. Make sure to subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or via your chosen podcast collector, so you'll never miss us talking into your ears again. And while you're at it, if you find value in what we are discussing, rate us on Apple Podcasts. It's like telling a friend about it, but better. And it gives us a chance in that big old world out there. I know we're just getting to know each other, but come on, show us some love. We're here for you. You're here for us. So let's do this thing. To sign up as an expert guest on the show, to leave us a question or message, or to jar tip your support, follow the appropriate links in the show notes. Be sure to keep tuning in weekly for our music festival newscast and subscribe to Deep Dives, our bi-monthly in-depth topical discussion show with interviews and guests that will bring you insight and knowledge. Link in the show notes. This podcast edited by GBA Recordings. For me, Mario. And Shanae. See you next time. Bye.